0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. and We'll catch you next time. I wasn't here last week. And uh, you give... So I had two weeks to think about this text. Uh, You give a melancholy two weeks to think about death. It's not good. Not very good. Uh, today we come to the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, and of course it's the climactic sign, the most dramatic and provocative of Jesus' miracles. Only John records it. It fits right into his purpose of, uh, explaining the heart of the gospel and, and sort of stringing these signs together strategically, uh, To help us come to believe, Uh, N.T. Wright says, I love this the signs are a treasure hunt, and they lead us to Jesus, the treasure. Now, if you think about the other signs, it's possible that at a wedding you were in charge of, or maybe attended, didn't run out of anything. It's very possible that uh, you see with both of your eyes. It's very possible your legs work fine and that your stomach is full and that your child is not on a deathbed. So perhaps John's offer at the beginning of this series for eternal life is just a little too otherworldly. You don't really know how to put your arms around it. Maybe it's irrelevant too far removed from the real issues of life to take too seriously. Uh, But not this sign. Not this one. The only way that Jesus' offer of eternal life hits you as irrelevant is if if you pretend you're not dying. And by the way, we, we all do it. Ernest Becker wrote, a groundbreaking book in the 20th century, Denial of Death. He writes, the mainspring of all human activity is to avoid thinking about death. Because everything we do from the moment we wake up is to get our minds off of that one thing. I just finished reading a book called Remember Death. Matthew McCullough. Excellent read. Very, very healthy read. He says we lack a sort of death awareness. He says death is avoided with such earnest, it doesn't feel like our biggest problem. And so he argues it's become sort of invisible and unmentionable in our culture. So he writes and presents a a tremendous case. Uh, We die in nursing homes and hospitals filled with bewildering machinery dependent right to the end on medical cures. We dress up the dead like they're going out on the town. We say things like, he looks really good. We celebrate funerals with such vigor they could be confused with weddings. used to be a time when churches had graveyard in front of them. Remember those? If you drive in the south, you still see them I was just in Birmingham, but when, you know, Gail has an aunt that lives there. So occasionally we would visit there in the summers. We would take the kids, she has, lives on a lake. And we would drive through there, and there's a little church. There's a white church sits on about five acres. It's a beautiful little white church. And in the front are hundreds. It's like the front yard, right up, leads right up to the door, from the road all the way to the front door of the church. Hundreds of white crosses. And we would drive by there. I remember Mikey. He was the youngest, and, and at the time, very young, we drove by it, and he said, uh, is that a church? And I said, yeah. And he said, does everybody that go in that church die? <laughs> uh, you know, and I've reflected on that, and it, it may say something about the church, I don't know, but it definitely says something about us as humans. That's that's our end, but for the churches, these, they, they thought of death every time they went to church. I also read that in the uh, 18th century, the way we used to teach our kids the ABCs, there's this uh, resource they used to use in the primary schools. It was called the New England Primer. And they would go through the alphabet, and many of the alphabet letters were Bible characters. Uh, but the other ones pointed to the reality of death. What they would do is they'd take each letter, and they'd match each, or they'd match each letter with a two-line rhyme, uh, and then they'd put a picture next to it that sort of pictured that illustrated the rhyme. And so, for instance, uh, the letter T had a skeleton holding an hourglass in one hand and a reaper's scythe in the other, and it would, and it read this. Time cuts down all, both great and small. And then for the letter X, reinforcing the same message, uh, it had a, a, a funerary pyre uh, with this rhyme: Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. And then the then the last letter Y of the death was uh, even more jarring because it was another picture of a skeleton. Uh, this one holding an arrow pointed down at the body of a small child. And it said, youth forward flips. Death soonest nips. But this was a way, and, that, and it was a time when death was right in front of your face all the time. People died in your home. You saw it all the time. You were around it. Whereas these days, we're very far from it. I, don't, I can't remember the last time I did a funeral where somebody was in a coffin. They get cremated in there in ashes and you, they, they disappear from you and you don't see them anymore. And so it's easy. But despite the fact that our technological advances, our medical breakthroughs, uh, we have longer lifespans, death is inevitable. But we behave like it can't happen to us. That, and if it does, it's like some sort of failure. Something just went terribly wrong. Because it doesn't seem like that's the natural end of human beings. Uh, Simon de Beauvoir said this, For every man, his death is an accident. And I love Freud's comment. I think it's very true. Fundamentally, no one believes in his own death. And if you do picture yourself dying, Freud said you'll, you'll reflect on your life and you'll think, I wonder what she's doing now that I'm not da-da-da. And that's still a way that you still think you hadn't died yet. It's incredible. I remember this really hit home to me years ago when Princess Diana died. I was, uh, I was visiting a friend and I remember watching on the television this story of what happened and the commentator, and I memorized it. I'll never forget what his words were, and I've, I've got them. And there's an exact quote, and he said this of her death: "If the most luminous woman in the world can die, what hope is there for the rest of us?" And I remember how startling that was to me because I said to myself, well, "What do you think was going to happen?" And it isn't that he academically didn't know we all die, just like you know but somehow you have figured out how to live like it's not real and it can happen to you so john includes this miracle and we're going to see he includes this miracle to wake us up to this reality in case you have been deaf unaware and look at look at how this story begins Jesus is away with his disciples. He's got to be called to this funeral. And he tells the disciples, I just got a message. Lazarus has died. And look at the next three words. I'm glad. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there. And by the way, we'll see. That's one of the biggest problems in the text. Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, you know, if he'd have been here. That's how we say when we suffer and we hurt and people we love die. You know, Lord, you could have. Here's what Jesus says. I'm glad I wasn't there. That you may believe. As if Jesus is saying the worst thing that can happen to you is not that you're going to die. It's that you die without believing. He will go on to say a couple of times, do you believe? And even when he prays, he prays a prayer to bring Lazarus from the dead, but when he prays that prayer, he doesn't ask God to bring him from the dead. He he assumes God's gonna hear him. He says, Lord, I know you hear me. That's not my request. I'm saying this out loud because I want the crowd to believe. I want them to know you sent me. That's more important. So surely Jesus is thinking the death and the grave will open people's eyes, right? To who I am and their desperate need for me, you know, to believe in me. And the question is, what does that mean? Because as we conclude a series on belief and unbelief, we really ought to know what it means to believe and i think john wraps that up beautifully here and it comes in a response to martha and what he says to her is far more practical than you may think it sounds incredibly theological in fact it's the most theological thing said in the text but it's profound and we need to reflect on it so you remember what happens is when martha goes out to see him she says to him lord if you'd have been here my brother wouldn't have died but i know that you know you're close to god and you can you can you can talk to him about anything She's sort of assuming that. She's not assuming that you can ask him now to come from the dead. That's not on her mind. She just knows he's close to God, but you weren't here. And then uh, Jesus says to her, your brother will come back to life again. And Martha says, well, I know he's going to come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. I mean, I kind of, I know that's going to happen. And he said to her, hold it, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if if he dies. The one who lives in me and believes, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Now, Martha has a concept of resurrection that probably most of you have. One day, God's going to bring to life all of the dead. It's the resurrection of of the dead. Some people are, John talks about it throughout the gospel, by the way. He talks about resurrection a lot in the gospel and how Jesus provides life that um, uh, includes a resurrection. So that one of these days at the end, God's going to resurrect everyone. Everyone will resurrect. So in Christianity, There's no ethereal sort of non-existence or some weird uh, sort of spiritual existence. You resurrect. You get a body. You operate. you You feel. You function. It's not extinction. And everyone will rise. Some will rise to life and John says some will rise to judgment. That's what he teaches. And Martha's very aware of this Old Testament, very Jewish concept. And even John has talked about it. But for her, it's just sort of in the future. It's a little abstract. It's impersonal. It doesn't seem to affect her here in this moment. It's not terribly consoling this idea of resurrection. And I think a lot of us Christians live that way when we face death, when we do finally have to face it. Yeah, well, I guess one day. And Jesus says to her, this is his response to her. Hey, Martha? No, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, uh, we need to see because there's, there's something unique about this. This is the one of the, remember the seven I am statements in John. I am the light, I am the bread. But this one comes with two predicate nominatives. Look, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm both. And it comes with two promises. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, y- you might die, but you'll live. And ultimately, you'll never die. So there's two deaths. There's two kinds of deaths. There's a physical death and a spiritual death. And if you put them out like this, I am the resurrection, you put the promises with them, this is what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection, so he will live even if he does die physically. But then Jesus says, I am the life. The one who lives and believes in me will never die. So that means there's sort of an ultimate death. So here's what Jesus is trying to say to her. You're only thinking about the end. You're only thinking about the second one. I want to draw your attention to the fact that what what happens if he dies now? What kind of life do we live now? What kind of hope do we have now in light of this truth? So what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to pull her out of the future and out of the abstract Okay, where she has this sort of textbook idea of the resurrection. But it's not penetrated her heart. It has not changed the way she lives at all. Uh, And Jesus says, I don't just give life, like at the end, here's your ticket. Sorry for the bad ride. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. I don't just give life. I am life. To have me, to know me, is to live now and forever. This is a whole idea that eternal life begins now and extends into the future. To know him is to be connected to life. Now and forever. It's not for later. So companionship with me brings you into a deathless reality. That you have eternal life flowing through you such that you never taste death. That's what John 8 says. You never even taste it. That means when believers die who are associated with Jesus, and Dallas Willard put it like this, and I think it's great. Nothing like what is usually understood as death will happen to those who have entered into his life. You don't taste death the way people without Christ taste it. So physical death in Jesus' mind is not the important thing here. But for us, it's the thing. For Jesus, it's there's a sort of a, a startling disregard for physical death in the New Testament writers, in Jesus especially. But what Jesus is saying is because of that, your life can take on the quality of eternity now personally and present in other words your life can be infused with a meaning because it lasts forever this is the one thing that haunts humankind is this whole idea that no matter what we do it's not gonna it's not gonna last that's ecclesiastes everything's futile and meaningless He says, why it doesn't matter how much you get how smart you are how much pleasure you've experienced it doesn't matter anything Because you all end up in the same place. That's literally what he says in Ecclesiastes. All go to the same place. It's the poison. The fact that we know we're going to die is the poison that poisons everything we love because we know that our worst nightmare is the ultimately and eventually going to happen. We will lose everything here. And Jesus is saying, for many people, that's all there is. And if you know me, death can't wipe away anything we've done together, anything we share together. In other words, what I do with Christ and what I do for him has eternal implications. Meaning I'm perfectly safe, perfectly safe in this world to do whatever he asks me to do. I don't have to fear it. I don't have to spend my life avoiding death. Even though I know everything's going to be lost. See, once you really understand this, then you can live with a kind of joy even though you're going to lose everything as opposed to trying to hold on to everything and hoping that somehow having more protects you from dying. Because it doesn't. The most luminous woman in the world can die. All the stuff you have is sort of like it's it's sort of like props on a set. You put them up there for the play, and then you take them. When I was on when I used to work for Miami Vice a television series down in Miami, my first job was with the set decorator. And the year I was driving him, he won the Oscar. For the best set decorator. You know what we did every day for 15 hours? Drive around just picking up stuff for a new set that the construction crew had built. And we'd come in there and make it look so incredibly beautiful. And the next day I'm racing down there to get it all put away. That's how life is. But Jesus says, not if you know me, what I'm offering you is not abstract. It's not something down the road. Not something that should concern you now. That's not what Jesus is offering. And I want to I I show you what I mean by it's not abstract and try to apply this, this important thing. And I want to picture it this way. Watch this. How does this thing come into the present where we live now? How does I am the life... Affect to how you and I live. So notice what happens. After Martha has this conversation with Jesus, she runs to get Mary. And, and Mary says to her privately, hey, the teacher's here and he's asking for you. So Mary heard this. She got up quickly. And I want you to, to understand something. Uh, two things going on here. The summons... And this, and this raising up. In chapter 12, the next chapter, we're in chapter 11, next chapter, the way they describe what happened in chapter 11 in the resurrection is they say, he summoned Lazarus. This is the same word. He summoned him with his voice. He called him out. That's the summons. And then... She got up quickly. This is the word for raised up, resurrection. It's used seven times in the Gospel of John for resurrection. So what you're seeing is that Jesus is trying to communicate, you can live a resurrected life right now. Every time you hear my voice and live it, you're living an eternal quality of life right now. You have life in you when you do that. Whenever you do it, you're already living an eternal kind of life. It's already flowing in you. Whenever I speak and you move, I'm leading you into life itself. And you think about all the energy you spend trying to avert death as opposed to freely living the way Christ would want you to live and live the life he's called you to. Two different kinds of life. Now, uh, listen. Um, John 10 says, "My, My sheep hear my voice. And they obey it. And when I obey Jesus, it's, it's as if I exit death and inner life and the grave clothes come off. That's the beautiful picture of this. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm free. You know what it says at the end, and you gotta, you gotta love this right here. At the very end, when he calls Lazarus out, this is what it says. The one who had died came out His feet and his hands were tied up with strips of cloth and a cloth was wrapped around his face. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him loose. Do you think anyone lived more loosely than Lazarus after this day? And pardon the pun, but how tightly wound do you think he lived prior to this? How tightly wound do you live? All day long, expending energy, anxious, avoiding... The worst case scenarios, falling down in your bed with just pure exhaustion for trying to hold the universe together in a day. I realized over the last two weeks, I'm a little too tightly wound. I'm a little too controlling. And here's what Jesus is saying to Martha, Martha. Don't you dare put what I'm offering you as something in the future that doesn't affect you now. You can come loose right now, Martha, because my life flowing through your veins gives you the ability to live a life that's meaningful and purposeful, forgiven, connected to me, so that even if you lost your life, you'd still be living. That's a profound picture In other words, we spend our lives sort of unraveling from death and decay, even though our bodies are aging and we're getting closer and closer to the grave and our lives are vulnerable and they could be taken any minute, not just at the end. When we know Christ, we're slowly unraveling from that decay and that sin. Is that happening to you? So she gets up immediately. Is there anything, is there anything this person could ask of you and you not quickly do? Is there anything that could come out of his mouth that you go, eh, that sounds scary? If the Christian life sounds scary to you, then you're not seeing Jesus' life. I was very convicted about it. See, Lazarus is a picture of a person who comes to life within this life. He has to die again, unfortunate for Lazarus. Right, he's got to die again. So he comes to life within this life and he gets to to know the wonder of living free from the fear of death. You know, Woody Allen, I think it was, was the one who said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's got to happen to him twice, but Lazarus is 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 the picture to Martha. Hey, Martha, if you're waiting to live until the last day, you've missed it. Look at Lazarus; he's living now within this reality and coming unwound. It's wow, just beautiful picture. So, NT Wright puts it like this. What he's trying to get Martha to realize is the future has burst into the present. See, if you just think about it later, then death's always gonna scare you because the hope is always later. And so Wright says the future has burst into the present. Eternal life has come forward from the end of time into the present. It rushes on you in Jesus when you have him. That's one thing that I think is just very profound. What limits have you put on your own life that have become in essence a kind of grave clothes that keep you fearful of death, avoiding death, and you're not really even living for the kingdom. But there's another thing that comes right quick because this is a very personal one. This is the one on you, that one. But what about this one? What about the ones we love? What about the fear we all have of losing the ones we love? Because that's what really hurts. Many of us are f- afraid of our own death, for sure, but it's the death of our loved ones that keep us motoring all day. You know, protecting them from it if we can, whatever. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. When Jesus says, I am the life, how does it help us? If Jesus is infinite and eternal and personal, then he is what our heart has always longed for. The thing that can come into our life and not, and it lasts because nothing else does. The most fulfilling thing what we have always wanted, life itself, Jesus is saying. In other words, if I have him, I'm never missing out on life. Ever feel like you're missing out on life? To have him means you're never missing out on life, no matter what you do or don't have, because whatever you have is gonna get lost. It's a, it's a big illusion. And so with me, you know what life is and you never miss out on it. Even when death comes, you haven't lost anything. See, most of our, see, we equate death with loss. I've lost a loved one. I've lost something I love. I lost a future. Not if you know Jesus. Martha. you haven't lost a brother. Not by a long shot. He's infinitely greater than any any anything you could possibly lose in this life. Any relationship, anything, any experience. You ever think to yourself, well, man, I just have never done that. Haven't ever been there. Wish I could. You know, that's how we think about people that, that have died. You see, if you know Jesus, you, you can never say, He died too young. I'll let this sink in. For most of us who say he died, I'm sorry he'll never get married. I don't know that that's some horrible thing say. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, darling. <laughs> some of the things we wish our kids experience. How about? He died, and before he lost, he never saw his grandkids. She never got to have children. And we just go through a litany of, well, he didn't see his kid, And, and Jesus is trying to say uh, something very, very profound here. And Tim Keller put it in these words, death trumps nothing for you. When Jesus tells you he's the life, he's saying you miss out on nothing if you have me. Now the question is, do you believe that? And That's something you gotta come around to. I've been thinking about it for two weeks. Give yourself a couple weeks on this one. I'm not so sure it wouldn't be so bad for you to picture everything you fear losing, lost. Jesus looks at her, if you'll remember, and he says to her, do you believe this? In fact, he says to her, do you believe this? And this is what she says to him. And it sort of shifts gears, this text. It shifts gears from that very practical future rushing in on us, life lived here, Jesus' voice, every time I obey it, I rise up and live. It sort of shifts gears. And she says to him this, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who comes into the world. I want you to think about this statement right here because it's unique to Christianity. There's a number of things in this text completely unique to Christianity. Jesus has been accused of not being there three times. When we're in our pain and suffering, we look at God sometimes and we say, where are you? Even even Martha and Mary both have said, where are you? And yet out of her mouth comes this profound statement. You have actually come into the world. Incredible. No other religion can say that that their God has come into the world. Look at this. No other religion claims a God who cries. There's no no crying in religion. Jesus wept. You know, this is a word never used in the New Testament this particular word for everybody in this text is crying. This is the only word used of Jesus and it means it's an outburst of tears like you've never seen or heard. It's what, div- it's what divinity looks like when it cries. And only Jesus could feel it. The horror of our pain from his perspective. And I'm gonna tell you, he sees death even worse than you see it in this text. And so he weeps. And it's a testimony to the horror of death as he watches his loved ones pain over this because he knows what death really does. What we all hate about it just separates us from the things we love. It just rips life apart. And Jesus is trying to say it's not natural. It's an intruder. It's an enemy that has to be defeated there's no just circle of life, and at the end, you just go away, suck it up. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here he is experiencing our pain. You know, the Greeks used to have a, a word they used of the gods, apatheia, which means apathetic. They don't care. They don't hurt. They don't cry. And they don't comfort. And Jesus is here pictured as someone who knows exactly how we feel, better than we even understand. Enters our suffering. You can say anything you want about God, about why he wasn't there when your pain hit. But what you can't say is that he doesn't know how you feel and that he doesn't love you. All throughout this text, you get these words over Lazarus. Oh, how he loved him. Oh, he loved them. You know how the message came to Jesus about his friend dying? Didn't even say his name. Just the one you love has died. You may not understand your pain, but you can't ever say God doesn't care and that he doesn't understand how you feel. Hebrews says we have a high priest who knows exactly how we're feeling but it gets gets even better than that because that would be one thing. That already separates him from any God you've ever concocted or any God that anyone has ever concocted. It's the next piece. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was intensely moved and agitated. These are stronger words than are usually translated. This is the net version and... Intentionally moved is about as strong as it gets even in other verses. No one says what the word actually means because the word means furious. It was used in the fifth century by a writer who, who uh, described a horse up on its hind legs uh, going into battle, snorting in anger and fierceness. And it's used twice of Jesus. It's used here as well. When he goes to the tomb, Jesus intensely moved again. Same word. Came to the tomb. It tells you how Jesus approaches death with an anger and a fury. Because he knows the devastating effects. And so it's sort of this... uh, uh, Calvin called them a champion striding for the tomb. There's a little book by B.B. Warfield, uh, a yesteryear theologian, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He writes this It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb like a champion preparing for conflict. He's about to take death on. And then he writes this. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus. As he wins for us salvation, that's the implication. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe Jesus smites in our behalf. Wow. This is like it's he, Jesus launches an assault on death here. And the, the, the question becomes how, how does he defeat death? And how does he defeat it for those of us who all deserve it? And how does he do it without killing us? How do you defeat death and not kill everyone who deserves it? There's only one way. This same divinity who came here and knows our pain did more than just enter, you know, attend the funeral. He intended to go into the grave himself. It's, it's the death of death when Jesus dies. Now, you may not have remembered this, but juxtaposed to Lazarus' death is Jesus' death. At the beginning and at the end. At the very beginning, you read this. This is before he even gets to Bethany. Uh, Rabbi, his disciples tell him, you know, you know Lord, uh, they're trying to stone you to death. They just tried to kill you. If you go back there again, they're going to kill you. So here is his death looming over Lazarus' death. In fact, Thomas even goes so far as to say, well, I guess if we're going to go, we all better be prepared to die. And then at the very end, you know what happens when the the high priests and the Pharisees are all contemplating what Jesus has done. This is what they say. So from that day forward, they plan to kill him. Jesus knew that by going to Lazarus' funeral, he was signing his own death warrant. And this is when they decide to kill him. And this is when they go after him. And it's only a few days later, he's dead. Jesus knew. The only way humans could have the life that I'm describing is if life itself is willing to die on their behalf. That's the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus is to a new life with a new body, different than Lazarus's. Lazarus comes back like he was. Jesus comes back like we're going to be. So God not only subjected himself to suffering, brokenness, and death, joined our experience of pain, but he also gave his life in order that we could have life. And that's different than every other religion, by the way. Stoicism says, ah, death doesn't hurt. Suffering doesn't hurt. It's not painful. Buck up. Buddhism would say, Suffering and pain and death, they're not real. They're illusions. And somehow you'll just get over it. Hinduism believes that everyone's death is deserved, and we know for a fact that while universally all of us deserve to die because of sin, individually there's lots of deaths that happen in the world that weren't deserved. That's karma. And seeing that up close, it's a horrible idea. It devalues human life in a way I can't even begin to tell you. And then there's secularism. We sort of denounce God and just say, "Eh, we just live in this little bubble and when it's over, it's over. And that means there's no meaning in death. There's no meaning. It doesn't go on. Quit crying about it. It's all over And what's even more profound as I get to this place is not even these philosophical realities are enough to move us. There are, there's a crowd sitting there watching Lazarus come out of the grave. And you know what it says at the end of the text? Many of the people who had come with Mary and had seen these things, they did believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and just told on him. That's scary to me. That not even Jesus' ability to, to give life, to raise the dead, to raise himself from the dead, is enough to prompt you to trust him. And I would just end this entire series by saying, what do you have? You know, Camus, Albert Camus, you know, the atheist, he said, there's only two things you can do about this reality. Commit suicide. Just get to the end fast. The other one was revolt. Just decide, I'm going to live the best life I can. Get all I can. Grab all the meaning I can. Get accomplishments. Get accolades. And just grind it out. And Jesus says, neither one of those is enough. Neither one of those is enough. I am the life and the resurrection. Do you believe? Would you bow your heads, Lord? Profound text, greater than we can even grasp. And for many of us, maybe more than we want to grasp. But at some point, these realities have to be faced. And what you offer, I think of Peter saying, where else can we go? No one else has the words of eternal life. It was more than that even, Peter. You don't just have the words of eternal life, you are eternal life. To know you, to have you, to trust you, to have you in my life means I live and I can never lose it. is a profound hope Lord that I pray someone in this room will grab a hold of today maybe for the first time and trust you and see what it's like to sort of come unwrapped and for the rest of us who've known you for a long time but we've been wearing those same grave clothes scared of everything anxious about everything and it's held us back from freely obeying you and serving you and loving you God Rip those things off of us because we have you in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.